Watershed Voice, community-supported journalism. Doug, what do you know about Flowbro Mano? I have no idea what you're talking about. I think you just made that up right now. I didn't, in fact. Um, you do know what culture is not optional is, right? Of course I do. Okay. Vander Geese and Reismas, the Kiefers, the Hawk Frost, you know, the uh, Wangers, just a whole bunch of folks. Um, most of those people, if not all of those people, have went to Florence Church. And the reason I bring that up is because today's guest is Pastor Devon Miller, who um, obviously leads that congregation. Um, and we're here to talk today about a variety of things, but we'll start off with, who are you, Devon? Who am I? Yeah. Well, I I am a, a a little Mennonite boy. I grew up as a Mennonite <laughs> boy. <laughs> my my mom and dad were both group both grew up Amish. If that if that gives you any context, and my um, I don't know if you want to go here or not, but my first language was Pennsylvania Dutch, and I still speak mm-hmm. Pennsylvania Dutch fluently until my um, in fact. When my mom passed away about a year ago, like her and I always talked Pennsylvania Dutch together. So that gives you a little bit of a context of, of who I am. So really or quick, I, before we continue, I'm going to need you yeah. to say, keep your voice down in that language. Keep my voice down in that language? No, no, no. Keep your voice down. The name of this podcast, which I'm sure you know... <laughs> Avid listener. Avid listener, Devon Miller. Go ahead and nod. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they can't see him nodding, Doug. That's why I announced it. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So you're just not going to say it? Say what? Keep your voice down. Keep my voice down? Keep your yeah, voice down. in... How would you tell someone to keep their voice down oh. in Pennsylvania Dutch? Ashtil. Ooh. Oh, but that that's more like be quiet. Okay. All right. But All I don't right. know how you would All say right. uh, keep your voice down. Sash do. Fluid. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> 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 All right. So anyway, like let's get a little bit more into your background. Um, okay. You have a very interesting education that I think a lot of folks, when they stereotypically think of someone who uh, has a religious profession – when they would hear your education, they might be like, huh? Yeah. Well, so I, um, I have, I did my, um, I did all my, um, secondary education as an adult student. I began when I was probably 35 and I was about 40 when I finished my, uh, bachelor's, uh, at Bethel, 
it's a university now in Mishawaka in Bible and ministry. And then immediately from there, I went to, uh, at that time it was Associated Mennonite Biblical Seminary. It's Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary now. I don't know why they changed the name. But anyway, I did a Master of Peace Studies there. I completed that in 2009. And then in 2010, um, I was uh, accepted into um, Michigan State's uh, anthropology department, and I did a PhD there in cultural anthropology. And that may seem like like a weird um, trajectory for a pastor, like you said, but um, all of my education grew out of like a central question that I had. So soon after Margaret and I got married um, back in 82. We spent two years uh, doing voluntary service in northwestern Ontario, and we were assigned to work at a, um, at a residential school for Indian kids. Um, and we came out of there with a lot of questions, like about relationships between well, we didn't even even use this language. We didn't even have the language to talk about it. But um, looking back between settlers and uh, indigenous communities, and that mm-hmm. really set me on my course in asking kind of a central question um, in light of um, Mennonites who are Anabaptists and known to be uh, peace-loving people, how did they reconcile their um, migration that displaced indigenous people with those values that they had? And that was, that was my central question. And it led me, I, w- I wanted to do some kind of theological thinking about that, which is what led me to the seminary uh, and the peace studies program there. And then uh, but I wanted to think about it kind of more um, from a more academic point of view as well. And I entered um, MSU, uh, my advisor at that time, Susan Kraus, um, her and I talked about it. And I told her the thing I want to do is be able to help um, churches uh, retell their stories in a way that is more accurately reflects their relationship with indigenous people. So that's, that's a kind of a really short synopsis of why I did what I did. And, and like you say, like there probably, probably aren't very many pastors that have, um, a background in cultural anthropology though. I think it's really helpful. Oh, I, I absolutely, I see it in your meditations. Uh, that's what we call sermons at uh, Florence, Doug, meditations. Um, and we'll get more into uh, how good uh, Devon is at mediating later. Um, what I want to ask you is, obviously, we last year we went through and are continuing to go through now a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. What what's it been like leading a congregation through COVID-19 and how is it different from previous years? Well, um, the, 
the biggest thing, there, there are a couple things. One thing is, um, as, as a pastor, I, I've had to be aware of like the needs of, of the entire congregation. So back in the early, early days, there was this impulse of like, when can we go back, start meeting again? You know, had, we had no idea that this was going to last a year. I mean, we had maybe had an inkling, but thought that would be absurd if it would last a year. And so we were thinking like in April and May, like, well, in June, we'll start, we'll be able to start meeting together again. Um, but there, and, and some people might've been able to get away with it, but as a pastor, I felt like we had to take into account the entire congregation and, and the entire congregation's needs and to find ways to include everyone rather than just the few that might've felt free to meet in person. And so we had to explore ways of, of, um, trying to connect and stay in touch. And it's been a real challenge. I, I don't know that we've been real successful in that. Um, we, we've tried to provide something on a weekly basis, but that doesn't really uh, substitute for the personal contact uh, that we're used to. So that, that's one thing. And, and now it, it's coming kind of full circle again when we're beginning to think about like, well, when can we meet again? And, and there are new conditions now that um, I think we have to consider because this, this most recent um, spike is affecting young people. And so when last fall or last spring, um, young families may not have been as, um, you know, conscious about getting together. Uh, now it's affecting young people. And so um, I think families are considering the risks and benefits like, well, I'm going to send my kids to school, but I'm not sure I'm willing to bring them to church, um, you know, and expose them to risk in that way. And so to me, it's a constant weighing of the needs of the entire congregation instead of just the few that are pushing to meet. So that's one challenge. The other challenge is that because of the technology, and I'm not a real tech geek, though, I, I can usually figure things out eventually. Um, it's, it's kind of forced me to, um, a, a lot of the workload in, in trying to put um, something meaningful together Sunday by Sunday onto me. There's, there's maybe two other people at Florence that have the capabilities or the willingness to um, put something together digitally. So a lot of that has kind of fallen on me, which I don't mind. I actually enjoy the challenge. Like this Sunday, I put together a call to worship. Um, I'm, you know, I'm trying to learn how to put, um, how to edit videos. And I, I'm really having fun with that, but it takes a lot of time as, as you, I'm sure you yes. know. So anyway, those are, those are the two biggest things that I think that have changed where before you just show up to church kind of, and everybody do their thing and then you'd go. So you mentioned the pushback from parts of your congregation about not meeting in person and about alternative means of, uh, of worship, of meditations, things like that. What has the pushback looked like and what have, what have been your strategies to handle it? Well, one thing that I would say about Florence is that they've been 
uh, very um, that that there hasn't been a lot of pushback. I, I would say okay. that the pushback that has come has been very light, like more like, boy, we can't wait till we can meet again. Like, when can we meet again? But it's not like, well, we've got to meet this. We've got to start. Mm-hmm. There, um, people have been very considerate of that. And, and that's one thing that I'm thankful for. Um, so, uh, and I think one, one of the things that I've tried to do is to try to stay current with like just the most recent state regulations and uh, guidance from the CDC and so forth, even though sometimes that's not always um, doesn't seem to make a lot of sense all the time. And also I try to stay in touch with um, our um, conference leaders that, that have provide some guidance in that as well. And I think the other thing that has made it easy for us, the, the churches that we associate very few of them have been have met during this time, and so there's not a lot of pressure from that either. Um, now, I think a lot of churches in the area here um, have been meeting, but the churches that we associate regionally, um, there hasn't been pressure from that. So have your um, your have your online presence mirrored your in-person presence or has it been pretty different? Um, both. Uh, we we kind of alternate like the first and third Sundays. We do a more kind of traditional um, service mm-hmm. on zoom. Uh, and, and we try to have some of those elements, but some of those don't really work. Like trying to sing on Zoom doesn't work. And so we've oh, sure. tried to have like, you know, some music videos, but we're not very skilled at that. It doesn't seem like we've <laughs> developed that very well, um, though. I think part of that is just technology that, that we're using. Um, I bet. Well, can I just say, like covering a city commission meeting um, at the beginning is is always pretty funny because they try to do the Pledge of Allegiance on Zoom (laughs) and uh, no one is in sync. Like not one person (laughs) is in unison. Um, So it's pretty scattered. So I cannot imagine trying to do a hymn or anything like that um, on Zoom. It's just not, it's just not the same. Um, And what, and what a weird concept doing what's best for everyone, <laughs> protecting everyone's welfare and safety yeah. and not listening to the few that are, that's weird. I mean, so like they're, they're more important than the collection plate. Oh, what? What? Yeah. Um, so speaking of, uh, of, you know, decline in, um, you know, attendance for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, What's it like being a religious leader in the 21st century when so many young people have either walked away from the church or were never introduced to it in the first place? Um, I, mm-hmm. I know for me, um, I grew up with parents who were in the seven-day Adventist church, um, and it was very restrictive. And, um, you know, I mean, I like pork so uh, <laughs> and meat in general. Um, so 
you know, religion and, you know, organized religion at the very least has never been, you know, uh, a top priority for me until I was introduced to Florence. Um, and that changed things because of how progressive it can be, how open-minded it can be. And, um, recently Devon and, um, uh, few others, a handful of others, uh, we sat around all socially distanced and discussed the, um, let's call it Florence's constitution, whatever. (laughs) Um, and we talked about like what makes Florence Florence, like what should we keep? What should we focus on? What should we change if anything? Um, and a word that kept coming up coming up was questioning the ability to discuss topics theological and otherwise um whether it's racism in america um you know immigration etc etc it's a very like oh yeah who is god um or what is god yeah or what is god these sort of things come up all the time um which i think would be more appealing to a younger audience if they knew that it existed. So what has it been like um, leading an organization where membership is declining or it's just getting older and, you know, the new crop of, you know, uh, congregation members aren't coming in at the pace that they used to? Yeah, that that's a... Uh if I could, if I could figure that out, um, well, I, I don't, I don't even know if I want to figure that out because I think what we're trying to do is fit, fit, um, a generation into a, a model that may be well outdated, um, and have, has run its course. Um, and, and I don't know what, what, the future looks like for um, the church, really. Um, I, I agree with you. I think that there are, are a lot of um, younger people that would be really interested in the kind, kinds of conversations that we have at Florence. But I'm just not sure that, that the church is where they're going to look for that. Um, so, like I think the challenge is to think about ways to bring um, to bring those interests together without feeling like it has to happen inside the doors of a church as as we know it. Uh, I, I you know I, longer ago, I always thought that barroom theology would be a really good approach to to the church. Like Sign we, me up. So where you sit around and talk about these things in, in, you know, um, in a less formal environment. Yeah. Less formal environment with food. Um, you might have some, you know, a band playing in the background or something, or I, I don't know. Like I, I would love to play with that, that model, but I don't know if you can get anybody behind that or not. <laughs> But so the first thing we need up. to do is we need to get Florence a liquor license. 
and then go from there. Um, I feel like, you know, Donald would be a great bartender. Um, <laughs> so let's figure that out. Uh, <laughs> and get there. So what you're saying is Florence isn't doing anything necessarily or intentionally to combat that decline. Um, no, I, I don't, I mean, Florence is not evangelistic in the sense that we're out trying to, you know, beat the bushes to get people to, you know, join the church, which may, seems really Why odd. Why are people hiding in bushes? Like, <laughs> Well, where else would you hide? <laughs> Can you think of a better place to hide than a bush? Yeah, anyway, you know, a I, <laughs> yeah, a bar. Um, well, now, especially since none of them are open. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> socially distance in bushes, right? Yeah, no, I don't think you can. You can't. Okay. So uh, we've, we've talked a fair bit about the people who are not showing up. Um, is there a, is there a, a strain of the the twenty first century religious cynicism within your congregation, and how do you address that with the people who? who are looking for, you know, what you're offering, but still have their own doubts. Don't look at me, Devon. <laughs> look at me like that. Yeah. Well, the way I was going to address that is that at one time, about two years ago, we had, um, at the same time, we had someone attending Florence uh, who was an avowed atheist all the way to an Amish gentleman that would ride his bike about 12 miles to church to attend Florence. So there, there's that. Um, and I think that kind of gets back to what uh, Alex said earlier when we were talk, sitting around talking about the, um, the freedom to question. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's, not, um, there's not a pressure to... Uh, conform to, you know, a, a particular, uh, set of dogma. Right. Um, so, you know, I think the thing that, that holds us together, I, I've, I've asked this question ever since I started attending Florence before I was pastoring is like, what holds Florence together? And I'm not sure that I've figured that out yet, except that maybe it's, um, trying to figure out what it means to, uh, follow Christ in the 21st century. Um, and what does that look like? I'm pretty sure it doesn't look like what it did, you know, 200 years ago. Sure. Um, so that, that's the challenge, I think. Well, and I think the, the most grand thing about Florence again is that ability to disagree and still respect each other after. And that is something that I think Mm -hmm. you're very well versed in and is part of the reason why you do what you do now um, beyond the walls of Florence. Um, If you could go in a little bit about the mediation work that you've been doing, not just right now, your current job, Mm -hmm. but I know you were doing a job previously for school systems? Yeah. Well, yeah. So um, during my studies, I'll, I'll, um, already when I was at the seminary, I ran into this book. It was called uh, Healing as Justice. Um, I think the subtitle is something in Indigenous Ways of 
Oh, I can't, uh, I forget what it called, but it was, it's a book, a uh, compilation of essays written by indigenous scholars from around the world on, um, restorative justice practices. And I was, I've been really intrigued by that and I've been reading about it, um, ever since. And back in 2019, I had the opportunity to work as a restorative justice facilitator in a school uh, close to Lansing at an elementary school. And um, it was, it was such a great experience working with um, young kids um, who were, um, you know, they weren't huge conflicts, but um, they, they really didn't have way to ways to work through those conflicts where they might've been, um, ended up being suspended from school or, you know, having to stay in for lunch, they would come to my office and, uh, we'd bring the, the two parties in there. Uh, sometimes there were more than two, maybe there'd be three or four students involved. And we would have what we call a, a talking circle. And in the talking circle, we have, we have a talking stick and we'd pass the talking stick around and whoever had the talking stick, they had the floor and they could tell their side of the story. Um, and then everybody would have a turn and then we would, they would work together in finding a resolution to that. It wasn't, it wasn't something that I would impose on them. They would, they would figure out on their own how to resolve it. Uh, and, and they were so, um, welcoming to to that approach to resolving conflict that they would just come in and hang out in my office just because they like like that um the the vibes that were going on in there Mm -hmm. um and so i I, i'm really interested in in pursuing that further in different ways and in different contexts um so yeah that that's kind of led it led me into um my work um i began the first of the year working for the Lombard Mennonite Peace Center, which is in the suburbs of Chicago. I'm working remotely right now, but uh, there we, we do mediation training for churches. Uh, and we also do mediations for churches around the country. Um, so we're working with different churches like right now in Florida and St. Louis and um, helping them resolve conflicts, sometimes longstanding conflicts. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I find that work, I know, very fulfilling. Okay. So quickly, I just want to clarify for the listeners, the book that was mentioned is called justice as healing indigenous ways, uh, by Wanda D McClaslin and a forward by Elizabeth Cook Lynn. The, uh, subtitle that you mentioned is writings on community peacemaking and restorative justice from the native law center. So if you are looking for that book, hopefully that helps. Yeah. It's a great book. Yeah. One, one so, of the, well, go, go, ahead. go ahead. No, all right. Yeah. I was just going to say the the uh, just for folks who don't know, what exactly is restorative justice, uh, and how and how is it different from say our current justice system? Yeah. So the the difference between uh, the the model that we use in here in um, in the United States is what we would call punitive justice, and so. If somebody, if there's a uh, wrong that's committed, you try to, you know, prove that the person did something wrong and then you punish them appropriately. Um, 
you know, whether it's jail or a fine or whatever. Uh, in, in restorative justice, the idea is that you bring the offended party and um, you, you bring the person who's been wronged and the person that, that's committed the, the wrong together. Um, and th- this gets back to what I was going to say um, just a little bit earlier, is that one of the things from the book that I, that I really kind of come back and think about quite often is in a lot of indigenous communities, there's no uh, word for what we use in the religious um, community for sin. Mm-hmm. Um, that concept doesn't really exist. It, it's more along the lines, like acting as if you had no relatives. So think about like you do something that hurts someone else. You're acting like, you know, your mom's not there. Like, right. would you do this if your mom was around? Um, right. And so the idea is, well, when you act like there's the rel- like you have no relatives, what do you do? Well, you bring in the relatives. Mm-hmm. And so in restorative justice, you bring in all the people that have something at stake here. Like how, who, who's been affected by this? And you bring them in and you let them um, say how they've been affected by it. And then uh, it's, and part of this is to also pay attention to the needs of the person that's been um, wronged, like in the punitive justice system, like, all the attention is on the person who's been who's committed the the offense, right? And and you don't really pay attention to the needs of the person that's been wronged. And in restorative justice, you it's not that you um, let the offender off the hook; they're still responsible and obligated. But to, you you figure those things out together as a community, rather than just someone from. Um, on top, figuring out how, what the punishment should be. So that's, that's kind of a quick, and, and there's more, rather than a, um, in restorative justice, the, the emphasis is on the process rather than like a goal. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's, it's the getting together and talking about it. And that's really at the, the core of restorative justice. So what would that look like? Um, let's say someone murdered someone. Um, instead of sending them to prison for the rest of their lives um, or, you know, in some other states, the death penalty, um, death row, what would restorative justice, like how would restorative justice handle that? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it may have its limits, you know, in, in, you know, certain cases, like there, there are cases where, um, you know, I mean, I mean, if someone murders someone there, there, there is liability. I mean, there is an obligation. Um, it, in its, in its simplest form or maybe in its most basic form, like, um, it, it might just be the opportunity for um, the offender to hear how it's affected the family. It right. uh, doesn't mean that they don't have an obligation to, to, you know, to, um, you know, maybe s- serve some kind of a sentence or whatever. It doesn't necessarily 
forego that. It doesn't eliminate um, punishment it necessarily. No, it doesn't eliminate punishment or obligation. Um, and and it may it, and probably restorative justice has a lot more um, value, maybe in like in, in civil cases. Like it's used a lot, like in um, civil cases, or you know, say somebody um, you know rakes leaves over into my yard, and mm-hmm. you know, instead of calling the police, and you know, you know, there there, there are ways that you could you know maybe work. Th- I mean, that's a real simple. Right. Uh, maybe way on the other end of the spectrum of murder. <laughs> well, and I know I've seen and read about it being done, um, you know, in pretty severe cases mm-hmm. where someone was raped or there was a robbery mm-hmm. and, you know, the bank teller and the person who robbed, like, sit down with a mediator and they mm-hmm. talk about, like, the trauma that, you know, the the person who robbed the bank caused the bank teller and how they've been living with that. And then they figure out a way to uh, not only bring some closure, but to explain why I did what I did, why, mm-hmm. why I robbed that bank, um, yeah. you know, and when you try to understand the other person um, and then also admit, you know, your responsibility in the trauma that was induced, um, it can be very, very good for the victim and the, uh, you know, the, the person who committed the crime, um, you know, as far as their mental health goes, it can be a very positive experience. So I know that it, it, like the reason I bring up the murder thing, um, is because I know a lot of people, as soon as they hear the idea of restorative justice, they go, no, lock them up and throw away the key. But um, the whole the whole idea initially behind the criminal justice system in the United States was rehabilitation. And I feel like in recent years, when you get for-profit prisons and a variety of other um, aspects of the system. Mandatory uh, minimums. The, exactly. Mandatory minimums. Mm-hmm. Um, rehabilitation is not the goal. Yeah. It never is the goal. No, containment and is the goal. Exactly. Containment and then profiting off labor. Right. Um, you know, I mean, you know, in a lot of cases, it's just indentured slavery. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. The, the other thing about, about it that I think needs to be clarified when, when we think of restorative justice, we think of the word restore and, and immediately our mind goes and, thinking that we're restoring things to back to back to where they were before. And and that's not really the goal that, I mean, that's, well, that's not always possible. And it's not possible. The, the restorative emphasis is on restoring relationships Mm -hmm. and, and restoring people back into community. Um, but not, not trying to say, well, we're going to, um, you know, try to go back to the way things were before this happened. Like that's not possible. Like there, like you say, there's too much trauma and, uh, involved in this that, I mean, if, if you try to do that, it just, uh, um, you know, in, increases the, the trauma or at least accentuates it. So there, there it it can be misunderstood certainly. So what happens in a scenario where restorative justice is being sought, but the victim of the 
the offense is looking for revenge instead. They're looking for, uh, you know, more of a punishment and less of a uh, restorative solution. Well, that's the thing about restorative justice. Like it has to be uh, like people have to go. There has to be um, a mutual sides. Yeah. Yeah. Like they, they both have to agree. Like you can't force people to um, go into the process. Uh, And so if, if someone is just absolutely refuses to um, enter into the process, you, you really, it, it really doesn't work. So it has to be a mutual um, agreement that you're going to mm-hmm. go into this process and you're going to walk through it. Um, so, yeah, that would be my response to that. So how does this training and this education um, on this specific topic uh, helped you as a pastor, as a father, as a husband? Hmm. Yeah, you know, you know, one of the things that I would say, like th- this sounds really, uh, I- I'm just going to be honest here. I don't like conflict myself. I don't, I don't like to be in conflict. I, I shy away from it, but I like to help other people work through it. That may be, that may be um, uh, somewhat hypocritical. I don't know if it is or not, but like, um, so. But I, what I, you're saying I, is you could learn more from the people you're helping. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, because sometimes conflict is not, uh, you know, a burden. Sometimes it's necessary. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's you know, not a in bad order to thing. solve something. When you no. talk about people advocating for themselves, when you talk about people standing up for themselves, certainly sometimes conflict has a role in that. Yeah. And, and I would say that, that, um, my wife always says I have like a, such a fair way of looking at things. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and when you talk about my, our family, like um, when, when one of my kids would come. So one, one of the things to know about my family, I don't know if you know this or not, Alec, but um, we have seven kids. Did you know that? I did. Yeah. I did. So uh, I met all of them at Jacob Miller's uh, graduation. Okay. I think. Yeah. And yeah. So there's there's a lot of um, uh, potential for conflict, but uh, although I would I would uh, say, and so we grew up. In I this have house four with, brothers. I have no idea what you're talking about. Never <laughs> not, anything but nice to each other. Well, so we we had we had um, they all grew up in in this kind of tiny house. I mean, it looks big from the outside, but it's not that big, and it has one bathroom in it. And so at one point, we had four teenagers. Uh, in the house getting ready for school with one bathroom. <laughs> I'm having and flashbacks. I still don't know how we got through that. Uh, did you get out like the sprinkler or? But anyway, I, when one Not of them would resolution come, right there. Yeah. When, when they would come to me, like with something or, you know, to me or Margaret, like, I would always want to hear the other person's side before I begin to like figure out what actually happened. Oh, well, you know, when I hear the other person's story, I can <laughs> understand why they did what they did or why you did what you did. So I think I, I don't know where I got that from, but I just, I always want to hear 
the other person's story before I make any, draw any conclusions. Of course. So are you interested in a career in journalism? Or <laughs> it kind of sounds like you might be all right. Yeah. Well, the problem is writing it down then. <laughs> yeah, that can be. It's definitely the problem. That is tough. And Doug uh, knows all about not writing things. Um, <laughs> but Devon, I want to thank you so much uh, for joining us uh, on this lovely Saturday morning. How would folks who are interested in joining Florence uh, eventually when everything reopens? Or I know that you have an email list and a Google uh, group in which, you know, uh, parishioners, uh, you know, communicate mm-hmm. and you also have uh, Zoom sessions uh, with your congregation. So if people would like to contact you, reach out, how would they do that? Well, you can probably the best way is to get a hold of me uh, through my uh, church email, which is pastor at myflorence.org. And my Florence is M I. F-L-O-R-E-N-C-E. Um, and yeah, that's the best way. And then I can put them, if they'd like to join us, um, I can either after we start meeting again, I can give them the times. We usually meet at 10 o'clock. Um, and we're also um, meeting on Zoom on the first and third Sundays of the month. In between, we're doing interviews with um, people on various aspects of uh, spiritual ecology and what that means uh, in an age of global warming. So, yeah, any of those ways, uh, if you'd like to join us in any of those areas, just just email me. Well, um, with that said, I think I think the real reason you came on this podcast today, and we'll do it off the air because I have a lot of grievances to air with Doug. Uh, we have, uh, <laughs> we have, on. we have known each other since 2007 and, um, there are some arguments that we need you to settle, uh, <laughs> just so we're clear, just remember that, you know, me a lot better and therefore, <laughs> <laughs> you know, his faults and why he's always wrong. Yeah, sure. Well, if, sure. They're, if they're sports related, that, that's easy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Devon. Doug, thank you both for taking the time yeah, to talk to fun. us. Yeah, it's been fun. Yeah. Um, stay safe. Okay. You too. No Down in my teeth, I got a lot of shine. Running up the number, that's a lot of crime. Try to take it from me, must be out your mind. I need time, got a sign. Smokey in the air, that's a lot of pie. Pockets running over with the dollar sign. Try to take it from me.